Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. We're recording. And it's a beautiful day on the east end of Long Island. Unlike how it was 10 years ago around this time. This our immediate attention here at the top of the broadcast. While the calendar may tell us we're days away from Halloween and the November election for that matter, it is still hurricane season. And Hurricane Sandy has experienced what forecasters are calling a stunning increase in size and intensity. This late season storm has already caused furious flooding in Jamaica. Damage in- yes, 10 years ago. Superstorm Sandy. Some people call it a hurricane. It wasn't really a hurricane by the time it hit us, but um, we thought it'd be interesting to reflect on the decade. God, how did that happen so quick? <laughs> uh, so with us today is Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And also here is Joe Shaw. Hey, Joe. Hey, and I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And Catherine Gimanu, a.k.a. Georgie, is in her house. I am. <laughs> hey, and I'm Georgie. I'm one of the publishers of the Express News Group. So it's interesting. Ten years ago, we were competing papers because Georgie and I were at the Sag Harbor Express. And Joe, you and Bill were the press news group. So we were out it there. hated conflict. Yeah. Just, just bitter, yeah. hated conflict against each other. So while we were wading through waist deep water in Sag Harbor, you were, I guess, we're doing the same down in Quag or somewhere equally underwater as we were scrambling to get the best images of the deluge of Superstorm Sandy, which was, they called it the Frankenstorm. Do you remember that? Because it rolled in like Halloween weekend. Right. And it also, yeah. I, I think, if, as I recall, as it, as Sandy rolled up here, it became a superstorm because it connected up with another storm yes. that sort of worsened the effect um, for us, not for us locally. I think we, we really got a glancing blow, uh, but well, we dodged a bullet, but, but it was, yeah. it was right up until that, until that day that they were saying it was going to come straight, straight at the East end as a category three, I think. I think what happened there was, it, it was like the post cyclone thing. And I, there was a weird front off the East coast that just shoved it, you know, joined forces and pushed it right into New York Harbor. And worsened it too. I think it made it stronger. Yeah. We've been using words like hybrid storm and perfect storm, which is essentially a winter storm and a tropical system combining into one big monster. Let's lay it out for you right now on what we know. First we, of all, we had the we had mostly the the storm surge, but obviously we also had plenty of wind and stuff too because we we lost power for for a while, and we mm-hmm. uh, I know there was a lot of you know. We had some damage at our house. We had a tree come down and take out a chunk of our, of, of our deck railing. And mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, it, I mean, you know, the thing about it is these storms, it's really surprising to me. I've lived out here now for 25 years and I'm surprised that they're not more frequent. And I think the concern is that they will get more frequent, partly because we're in a cycle where we haven't had a lot of bad storms for years and those things catch up to you eventually, but also 
the worsening uh, weather conditions with the, the climate change, yeah. uh, th this is going to be a con something we have to worry about moving forward. Well, and warming water as a result of climate change, because, you know, hurricanes and tropical storms feed off that warm water and get stronger. And so if we have longer seasons, if we're going like deep into the peak of hurricane season and, you know, the water off the coast of Long Island is so much more warm than it was 10, 20 years ago, that's going to just make it more likely that we'll get hit by a really big storm. And, you know, having grown up out here, like I remember Gloria um, when I was a kid, Hurricane Gloria hit. Um, and I mean, I remember driving around with my parents. I was little, I was like five, maybe six. And like up by the East Hampton library, huge oak trees all over the place, just completely uprooted. Um, it was a really big deal and a really big storm. Um, I can't imagine what happens if a category two or three hurricane makes a direct hit, like especially in the peak. Yeah. I don't yeah. even know what that would begin to look like. <laughs> you mentioned the, the warm waters and I thought it was interesting. And Michael Wright pointed this out in an article that, that he wrote um, last week in, in, in the press. Um, that because it because the hurricane was drawn into the second storm front coming off the east coast, it became extra tropical, meaning that it no longer yeah. relied on the warm waters for for its strength. So even so, it was just taking that cold Atlantic water and just churning that up. And I I thought that was mm -hmm. uh, super mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, I think the other thing everybody forgets about is that I mean the whole tentative nature of the power grid it's because the power was out that also meant that the gas stations weren't operating i don't know if you guys remember that but the gas was like that was kind of i think a real wake-up call a lot of them were just out of gas right but also just the, the power it's what's really was really kind of nerve-wracking is how easy the whole system went down it just collapsed i got caught with, with no gas in 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 my car and and i was um, I was living in West Hampton Beach at the time, so driving back and forth to to the Southampton office a couple of days after um, after the hurricane, and it came to to one day, and I, my car was on empty, and I still had to get back to to West Hampton Beach, and and I remember um, what a, a former employee um, had said, "Well, why didn't you just fill up your car before?" before the storm i'm like well i did but i've been kind of driving around doing stuff right. but, doing my job I, I, <laughs> I, I, I got lucky and you know and i found there was one gas station in east quag that um was known for having gas prices a little bit higher than everybody else which is probably why they had some gas left and i got in a long line and sat in the line for an hour and a half probably um, just praying that they wouldn't run out by the time I got up to the pump. And I was one of the last cars to actually get gas. And I remember I filled up and it was such a relief that I was going to get home that night because I didn't know what I was going to do if I ran out of gas. I mean, I wonder if a lot of people went out and bought electric vehicles after the fact, um, or hybrids at least, so you know that you'd get 90 miles to the gallon instead of 30 or something. Yeah. You are seeing now the big increase in people buying electric cars. But I mean, I feel like 10 years ago, there, there were just so few and far between and so probably out of most people's price ranges. I remember the gas thing being an issue for us. We had filled up before 
um, the storm. I think we sat online at um, the, what was the Harbor Heights gas station on 114 with everybody else. And we were able to fill both of our vehicles, but then we lost power at our house in Springs and I had a small child. I mean, Ella was like three years old um, and it was cold. And um, I remember Judy Klempner, who was the graphic artist at the Sag Harbor Express, her husband, Ray, they had a generator and her husband, Ray had like this little portable generator us this tiny little generator that sat on our back deck and we ran it only had like two lines and it was like enough power literally I think we put a heater in Ella's room and then like our refrigerator (laughs) and a lamp and like that was like all we could get out of it but I remember we were running out of fuel for it right find fuel anywhere and we were just like Jesus what are we gonna do I have to say and that and that is the smart one being married to somebody who owns a company that that supplies generators. We plug Adam's company here. <laughs> but the problem is that you still have ah. to fill it with fuel. And this is interesting because one of the jobs that my husband got after Sandy was powering a couple high-end complexes, condo complexes in Soho, one of which belonged to a very famous singer. Um, and he powered that for probably two or three months around the clock. The other one was round around the corner. It was a high-end condo complex, but because of the laws mm. of New York, they would not allow systems and buildings to go on upper floors. They had to be on the first floor. And then that lower part of Manhattan, it flooded so badly. So all of the mm. systems were destroyed. So basically wow. they hired Adam's generator to dry out the machine room at this luxury condo. Everybody had to move out. And for four months, Round the clock, wow. Adam's generator was running and uh, to dry that room out. And no. that was quite a good year for us financially. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this is the this is the focus for us when it comes to dealing with, with storms like that is it's about the electrical grid right. and, and the impact of, of that. And it's interesting that you, know, you were mentioning electric cars. Yeah, but of course, if the electric yeah. grid goes down, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, how are you going to charge it? But the thing is, though, if you have a hybrid, yeah. though, hybrid, I think, is the way to go because you still sure. can run on a gas engine, but yeah. you get 90 miles to the gallon. So you could, you know, flee the New York region if you need to. If the electric's down, you can't get gas either. So, it, you know, it, it's, um, you know, I, we Mike in his story uh, about the 10th anniversary talked about the fact that we learned lessons about the electrical grid in uh, Superstorm Sandy. And the utility is starting to put together uh, a package of upgrades to address some of the problems that they identified and to create sort of a system that, that, that allows a, a storm to hit and take out power lines and take out you know parts of the system, but they can be reconnected fairly quickly. And also I think that, that they have a system that they can identify the areas where they need to send crews to very quickly, but they're still in the process of putting that in place. We're, we're not there yet. Uh, you know, I think we're better than we were 10 years ago, but there's a long way to go before uh, the electric system on the East end is anywhere near storm resilient. Let's put it that way. Um, we're, we're in trouble if a big storm hits uh, and takes a lot of trees down.
Well, and also the flooding that, and Annette, you just brought that up about downtown. And I mean, flooding was a really big deal. And like, especially with Sandy on the North Fork, um, they really got hit because it was like this perfect storm of like the tides being at this like peak time, right when the storm hit. And I remember in Sag Harbor, we were, of course, like all of the local journalists, we were all working through the store, whether it was safe or not. And I remember walking down from the office to Bay Street and it was early in the storm. And I mean, Bay Street was wow. underwater, like the water hit like the top of Long Wharf so early and so fast. And they actually, the cops had to shut down Long Wharf because people were going down to look at, you know, what the storm was doing. And so flooding, you know, I think of areas like Sag Harbor and it's downtown and like back behind Main Street, Bridge, Rose Street, where we're talking about this big yeah. potential development project, like that area was just, I mean, underwater in the biggest way, all of those yeah. neighborhoods. Those photos were stunning. Yeah. I, I was really stunned by those photos. So that's what's interesting. You have somebody looking to come in and develop that who may have not been here 10 years ago to witness what that, you know, it's like maybe the, the memory seems a little short um, and short-sighted. I mean, I remember visiting Chris Hedges, um and her home, which is like back in that neighborhood. Um, I think it's behind, I, I think they're right behind um, Rose Street in Sag Harbor. And they lost like every, and uh, that whole neighborhood. Like if you had a hot water heater, you had like any equipment in your first floor or your basement, like it was done as a result of Sandy and cars just like totally destroyed because that whole area was. Yeah. They had, I remember they had a big lot up in, I think it was, it was Calverton where they were just storing all these cars. Once, once that salt water rises, rises into the engine, the car's just done. You can't, you can't yeah. fix it. You can't repair it. They were just totaled. I feel like they also in the city, remember the, um, the hospitals on um, in Manhattan on the, on the lower East side, all of those, all of their um, same thing, all of their systems were in the first floor um, and they were carrying patients down like multiple flights of stairs. So I think that's what's so funny. It's like how New York laws had been, you know, no services on the second floor, but I'm guessing that they've rethought that since that nightmare of evacuating lots of sick people um, in the aftermath. Right. I I just remember watching the videos of New York and the subways flooding and the subways being underwater. And it was just, it was incredible. You never think about hurricanes or super storms in, in quotes. See, now, they, now they have those big doors on like the Midtown Tunnel and all of the tunnels. Mm -hmm. You've seen those? They look like vault doors, which is really wild. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books. Independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. Carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, southhamptonsagharborbooks.com.
Now hiring booksellers at both locations. And, and at you and Georgie made a great point too, is that after Superstorm Sandy, and we saw that flooding in Sag Harbor, it starts to have an effect on how you think about development moving forward. So you have this proposal, um, you know, for that part of Sag Harbor that was flooded so badly. And it's been one of the, the messages that we've heard from a lot of people who are concerned about that project, which is that is an area prone to flooding period. But in a, in a major storm, it significantly floods and it can change the way you, you view a project like that when you've seen the, the you know, you've seen the, the topography and how it can, it can uh, be, become sort of the focal point of a storm. Um, and it may change the way you want to let things happen on that property. And, and that's a, an awareness we maybe didn't have before that storm. I mean, I think that you have to, um, if you're a municipality that is like forward thinking, even slightly, um, you know, and we're talking about this a lot with Montauk and, you know, the town's Hamlet plans out there because downtown Montauk is like right up against the beach and, um, you know, we're dealing with a lot of coastal erosion issues out there. Like you have to start looking at the impact of climate change and your existing topo topography and you have to plan for these storms and your zoning has to kind of reflect that, you know, but I think, you know, for a lot of our villages, especially which are like volunteer government, essentially, I mean, really, truly, um, you know, we tend to react more than like plan ahead, if that makes any sense at all. Um, you know, because you haven't really seen any outside of what FEMA demands of certain projects in certain areas for, you know, in order to get your building permit or to get insurance, you haven't seen like a ton of zoning that's been created specifically to deal with climate change yet. But I mean, you look at these maps and you go through a storm like Sandy, I mean, behind Main Street on Bridge and Rose Street, it doesn't even need to be a bad rainstorm before you start to see the water come up. Like the groundwater is like just right below the surface. Um, you know, with something like Sandy, just the whole place is flooded out. I mean, I, I think we've had pictures of kids in like kayaks back there. I think what's really interesting is the whole idea of FEMA versus historic preservation. Because in Sag Harbor, Georgie, I know you've covered this story extensively. There was a uh, a homeowner yeah. who was looking to get FEMA um, approved and they wanted him to raise his house, but it's a historic house in a historic district. And the, the village boards were like, no, it's historic. You can't do it. So I think that's interesting where you have the, the FEMA working uh, for one purpose, which is to raise houses and historic districts working at another purpose, which is to not change anything. Um, and those low-lying areas, I mean, honestly, that where most of that flooding is, that was kind of like that was like the back end of Sag Harbor in the whaling era. That's where a lot of the services yeah. were, you know, like they would make ropes back there, or they would make barrels, or it was really the working class kind of gritty waterfront, which is interesting. And that's, you know, the 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 wealthy people all lived up on High Street, which is why it's called High Street. You know, yeah. I think that's what you and that's interesting because yeah, really interesting. You know, like, yeah, when you when you realize that you can see that in a lot of places where you know the warehouses, the lower part of Manhattan, all of the, those lower um, Soho areas that were underwater, those were the old warehouse districts 
in Manhattan. And now they're luxury condos because everyone thinks they're cool buildings. But there's a reason that those warehouses were where people didn't live. And I think in Sac Harbor, the, the most valuable real estate in many ways is the part that was really the gritty waterfront. Um, and like to Lover to, Street. Lover Street, all of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Well, it, it's interesting how economics does come into it. And, and I, I think about um, like Quag and, and East Quag, where, where there was, a, um, I think there was a breach of, of Dune Road and, and mm. there was severe, severe erosion. But the neighbors there got together and, and they created a, a, a district and they, they put their own money into it to rebuild the, the, the dunes there. That wasn't available to you know to to other people. So I mean, because they had, because they had the funds to do that, they they could do that. But then you had, um, you know, you have people in um, Flanders area which flooded tremendously, and you know a lot of those people probably are still waiting for, um, you know, funds to to pay for their new houses. They can't commit. I mean, you can't rebuild dunes in you know in Flanders, but. But but they're still in the same situation as they were in, you know, b- before the storm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without the money. Yeah. And, and then you also look to other parts of the country, which we've done stories like this, um, you know, especially part of the Rising Tide series, which for some of our listeners is a climate change series that um, we've been doing all year and looking at what other areas that have regularly had to deal with getting hit by hurricanes like the coastal Carolina area um you know what they have done zoning and planning wise so that you can still have a home in Wrightsville Beach but the whole first floor of your home basically has to be hurricane ready um yeah. and actually one of my good friends has one of those houses and it's basically like the first floor is like an open garage mm. um and it's just it's it's there to be flooded um and that's how you have to construct your homes and i i mean i just think i think we're in the beginnings of these conversations and i think people like jeremy samuelson over in east hampton town are really pushing the conversation about development in this world of climate change forward um and that's just like critical because i mean we're talking about this huge storm that happened 10 years ago we've been pretty lucky since we had irene but you know we've been pretty lucky there's our luck is going to run out yeah. <laughs> it's inevitable yeah. But I also think that we're, um, I think we're also very fortunate in that we, I mean, as far as like structures on the beach, yeah, we have big houses and stuff, but we still have a fairly intact dune system, which really has, I think, helped us a lot more than, you know, you saw those places like, was is it Breezy Point or um, those places like near Rockaway that just got destroyed during Sandy, largely because they've built pretty much all the way up to the to the water line or put a lot of hard structures in you know bulkheads and things like that so i feel like we're in a little bit better situation because we have some natural dune systems left out here well and, and you've got the uh the army corps is going to come in hopefully at some point i mean they've been talking about this project for for decades but the you know the fire island to montauk point um they're they're mm-hmm. going to be nourishing um a, a lot of the beaches and and putting um, a lot more sand down and I, there's talk of some hard structures I don't know how much of that will happen but um, certainly hopefully that helps prepare for 
for the future and I mean, you know, future storms, but you know, storms are going to happen and as prepared as you are, there's going to be damage and, and devastation. And, you know, and I think that, um, you know, the preparing part is, is just knowing what, what to do when, it, when that happens, because it's going to happen. I also feel like the like the Armor Corps of Engineers doesn't have always have the best reputation with the projects that they do. Like has there been a lot of criticism? I don't think they take into account the 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 difference of the area, the east end of Long Island and the history of it and being resort area and, and all that. And I, I think they just kind of look at it as 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 one more beach and and you know, and I think that that leads to some confusion. Hi, this is Michael Wright. I'm a reporter for the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27East.com. I cover East Hampton Town and follow important stories about the environment, including the coming South Fork Wind Farm, its impact on the fishing industry, and other water quality issues. We follow East Hampton Town and village government, and I'm asking the tough questions and providing you with important answers. My colleagues and I in the editorial department work hard as watchdogs for this community, but we can't do it without our subscribers. If you find the work we're doing valuable to you, please subscribe by visiting 27East.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you very much. So do we feel like the power grid has gotten better in 10 years? Like I know that there was lots of um, commitment by LIPA and now PSE&G Long Island. Um, but do we feel like, have we seen improvements as far as the way the electrical grid is handled out here that we think that, okay, next, I mean, maybe it's more tree trimming, which I know you hate bill, but, right. um, they do a lot of, a lot of the tree trimming while you're trying to get to work. But I'm, I'm wondering what we know about what the power companies have done in order to maybe offset. According to Mike Wright's story. So, so LIPA has put $4.9 billion since 2016 into infrastructure improvements. And that includes $730 million in on storm hardening the grid making utility poles uh, stronger and lofting them above the trees um, where possible. Um, you know, it, it was interesting. He had a comment that people used to complain when they put, um, when they used to trim the trees or, 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 you know, put the lines over the trees. And, and ever since um, Sandy, nobody complains anymore. Yeah. And they're also making the, uh, the lines thicker apparently to be more, more resilient but you know I, I i think that um you know lipa and pseg took a lot of criticism two years ago after um after tropical storm is a is that that resulted in widespread power outages across long island that did not fill people with confidence that um i i mean i don't I have the numbers in front of me but it was um um there were people maybe not out here but there were people that went, you know, weeks without without mm -hmm. power um, on on Long Island, and that wasn't that strong a storm, and mm -hmm. and so and, and I think the criticism was more in their response, not in the infrastructure, but their response in getting the power back on, which um, there were some internal issues with you know communication issues and and all that 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 kind of um, prevented that. But so hopefully. Hopefully they've learned a lesson from that in two years as well. And now we're looking at an offshore wind farm, um, which probably would be blowing really, really strongly. Yeah, it's going to generate Atlantic. a lot of power. During a storm, <laughs> so right? I just, that'll be interesting to see how that, you know, do storms like 
you know, say, oh boy, we're going to have a ton of power <laughs> or are we, you know, yeah, that's, you know, bringing in, bring a, a bringing a power on shore from offshore in the middle of a hurricane. Wonder, we haven't really talked about that yet, have we? No. And, and, you know, if the system, the delivery system is down, it doesn't matter where the power is coming from. So did anybody go out and buy a generator since, uh, since the last uh, storm? You know what? Every time we get a storm like that, I think about the i my my dream is the cadillac of generators which is the kind the one that um actually we we have something similar at uh the office uh the newspaper office in southampton where when the power goes off it's off for about a second and then the generator automatically kicks on and you go which by the way when you're working on a computer that one second is enough to reboot and lose everything you're working <laughs> and on lose so, an article yeah yeah, yeah. so right. but you know um but we do have a natural gas generator uh that keeps the office going and and bill we were talking before we came on to record that that made our office kind of a an island um, during Sandy, some of our reporters were actually living at our office for a couple of days uh, because we had power, we had hot water, we have a bathroom with a shower. Yeah. You know, um, you could actually. Well, he, even after the power came on, there were three reporters that uh, camped out in, in the conference room for, I think it was over a month while their landlord worked on getting power restored to to their apartment they were, they were sharing. So it was... Um, it was quite an extended time. Yeah. yeah. So I think there were a lot of people that in, in that situation where the power came on for a lot of people, um, but there were still houses that, um, you know, where, where it took a long time. I know the apartment that I was living in West Hampton beach lost power. And one of the lines from the pole to one of the cottages in that complex had come down. So even when power was restored, um, to the neighborhood, I was still without power for, for several days. You guys mentioned the generator. So I had a, a neighbor downstairs and he was, he worked in construction. And so he, you know, on one of the last days brought home a little portable generator, a little gas power generator. And he ran an extension cord up, up to my apartment through, through the window, which was very generous of him. And it was enough to, um, power, I think, so I could charge my phone and, um, watch some videos on the laptop and and i mean certainly wasn't enough for the for the refrigerator or anything but it was a big help and then it at one point it just ran out of gas and we just that's the thing if i i feel like if i as a homeowner want to commit to a generator i want one that's going to let me have it's going to power the whole house my refrigerator and those those are the the furnace you know people forget that that you know a forced air furnace requires electricity to run you don't have heat when you don't have electricity so i i have definitely given it consideration in it uh but i have not pulled the trigger uh you know, it's expensive. Um, it's, it is it's, an, it's a huge investment. It's, There's a reason we haven't, we haven't done it for that. It's a fu- and like you said, yeah. you still have to, you still have to get fuel. It's a five yeah. figure investment. Um, and mm-hmm. you, you know, yeah, we, I'm not on the natural gas system, so we would have to install a, 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 a propane system and we would have to have a propane tank and have that filled too. So we'd have to yeah. pay for that. And yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. a, you know, but it is every time we get a storm, um, 
we get that much closer to doing because it. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> well, it's very inconvenient. Well, one of the, I don't know if you remember, I think it was New York Magazine after Sandy, they did an amazing issue put out an amazing issue and i remember the cover of the new york magazine was incredible because it was a aerial shot of manhattan after sandy like a, a couple and it's like you know most of new york looked normal but everything like below like 14th street was blacked out because they had lost all of their power wow. but that magazine had a really interesting they had basically put it to different like um landscape architects and designers like how to make new york more resilient in these kinds of mm. and one of the i thought the fascinating idea was to almost create like around lower manhattan build out like um you know the kind of like a like an artificial reef kind of situation maybe like concrete pavers or something that allowed plants to grow up between them you know how you sometimes see those um those natural driveways they're like little little um like concrete pads where grass can grow in between sort of that right. idea but off of lower manhattan where um sea grasses and things like that could grow up so you almost extend lower manhattan to be like a a, a green marsh you, to, to block the surge basically like stop the surge, you know to basically slow down the energy of the waves and i yeah. thought that was a really fascinating idea because it's a very natural solution i mean not that any of this is ever going to happen but you know that idea of the hard structures just needs to go away yeah. I got to tell you, though, um, I just the other night watched a PBS documentary about Venice and Venice having trouble with storm surges. And, um, you know, the, the city is is built on a lagoon and the problems that creates. But they've created a system called Mo's, uh in Venice, and it's essentially an artificial dam that there are they have barrier beaches that surround the city of venice um and provide sort of a natural buffer but there are inlets to those which is how the boat traffics come comes in and out of venice but what they have now is an artificial dam at each of those inlets that when they know a storm is coming and they actually have a monitor system that's off venice by like a mile or so and and is constantly reading and they actually have a pretty good idea of when the the higher tides are coming this artificial dam is is a series of of concrete um empty concrete things that they pump air into actually they have they're filled with water most of the time so they're underwater and then they pump the water out and these concrete things just float up and, and join together and create dams that close off these three inlets. It's called the Mose system. And it's actually working very well that, that when they know that a storm surge is coming, they can uh, deploy this and, and stop it. And I wonder if New York might benefit from something like that. Yeah, it's a good idea. Another one to think about. I, I wonder if New York might be in a situation I, the, you know, I'm, I'm not that familiar with the topography around New York, but I, I wonder if there's a, syst a system there that could be similar. And I believe London has something like that, too, that, that they have developed uh, a system for blocking rising waters uh, during storms. I mean, we're going to have to talk about this. It's fun. I just wonder what that does. I just wonder what that does to the ecosystem. Yeah. There's well, always a trade off. I'm yeah. And, and they talked about that. Actually, it was interesting in Venice they need the the it's they only deploy this system for major influx of water because the minor flooding that they get 
they actually need in that lagoon to keep it healthy, that that there are minor floods that come in and actually do flood the streets of Venice. And it's, if you've ever seen the they they actually have everybody's always ready with elevated platforms that they put in um, for people walking around certain parts of Venice that the water comes up. And, and we have been in Venice in St. Mark's Plaza when the water actually comes mm-hmm. up through the bricks like the water in Venice often comes up through the bricks and comes up through this, this, um, the sewer systems, you know, like the, the uh, storm sewer systems and St. Mark's in a matter of an hour was, was underwater. And we got out of there just in time because we would have to wait out otherwise. So it's just a natural thing. They need to have that to keep the lagoon Venice. Also their canals have, they pump their sewage directly into the canals. So they need, to, to keep those this, the waters coming in and flushing everything out. So it's, it's, it's no, really no interesting. Pun intended. Yeah. No pun intended. There is a flushing that takes place. But mm. areas like, like here and areas like New York City, we need to start having these conversations about what's, what do you do? Because cleaning up after a storm like this is, is a lot harder sometimes than investing in advance and trying to mitigate the damage that comes yeah i mean it does seem like the memory is a little bit short you know like i said we're seeing so much development now that seems to be not really talking about what happened 10 years ago back there so that'd be interesting to see what happens we also had one positive thing that came out of this i have to say is that the uh beach uh re-nourishment project that took place in sagaponic and bridgehampton came after Mm -hmm. hurricane sandy now i think it had been in conversation for a long time before that, but it actually did happen after Sandy. And, uh, you know, in the 10 years, it's been almost 10 years for that project. It's held up really well. And that helps mitigate some of the effects too. Mm -hmm. So um, we did learn some stuff from Sandy and I, maybe, maybe we learned some lessons that will stick. We hope. But what's interesting about that Sagaponic Bridgehampton beach renourishment project, it goes really back to what Bill was saying, you know, early in the conversation, so much of like what you can do post storm and some of these mitigation efforts, you know, if you're in a very affluent community that as a group, which is what happened in Bridgehampton, Sagaponic and Quag and East Quag chose to allow themselves to be taxed. Yeah to re-nourish that beach, you know, that's, I think it might be the wealthiest district, um, Bridgehampton school district, taxing district, maybe in the state, definitely on Long Island. There's a lot of affluence there. They could afford that project, um, you know, yeah. but other places, maybe not so much. Lessons learned, but we got a lot to do. Go get your generator now. <laughs> I know I still don't have a generator. I had to, go get my firewood so i had to bail out of the conversation for a little bit because i'm prepared for the winter yeah your firewood arrived as we were talking and i every year you know we talk about it we're like this is the year we're going to get the generator this is exactly the conversation we had uh we'll hook you up we can you can rent you can rent one we'll 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 give you thank you 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 delivered it you delivered a river hat or not you're willing to pay well, that's, I mean, it's true. I always know I have a net to fall back on. Like I know in a pinch, I'll just be like, Hey, Annette, pack the kids up. We're on our way over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, we've done that. Like Adam will have a job out here and it's, it's like, there's a, a storm chugging up the coast. We'll be like, let's not take that generator back to Brooklyn. Yes. Yeah. Just keep it in the driveway <laughs> for 
good idea yeah yeah georgie that's the i think it's funny you you had to leave the conversation to go get your delivery of firewood which is part of this conversation uh i just got we just got our delivery yesterday morning so oh i need some you guys got to send me a a good recommendation for firewood because we are out we tend to use use our fireplace it's not nearly as as good as a uh wood burning stove we've had the we we lived in a house in north sea that had a wood burning stove that was great um but even our fireplace keeps our entire downstairs fairly warm it's um surprising so yeah that's part of why we got it is preparation for the times you don't have power hopefully not and hopefully not for a, a while they're coming yeah i mean yeah. When, it's a, everybody cheer up it's a beautiful day out there today it is <laughs> it is a beautiful day it's gonna be a beautiful weekend yeah definitely so that's true. But no storms on the horizon, at least not this week. But I'll probably still have my wood burning stove going. Right where I was for Irene, major power losses all the way from DC to New York City and well inland. Scenario number two here flooding and surge, Long Island Sound, Narragansett, and Buzzards Bay, damage and power losses to many across New York State and much of New England. But regardless, both scenarios here mean major disruptions in transportation and commerce, major losses of power here and power damage. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SagHarborExpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.